Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Amanpour. Here's what's coming up. Israel says its troops are at the heart of Gaza City while calls for a humanitarian ceasefire grow louder. David Miliband, head of the International Rescue Committee and former British Foreign Secretary, tells me about trying to help civilians under siege. Then, how much influence does President Biden really have, even over the closest allies? I ask former US Ambassador to Israel, Daniel Kurtzer. Plus, decisive wins for Democrats, despite those Biden polls. New York Times reporter Ested Herndon speaks with Hari Srinivasan about last night's election results. Welcome to the program, everyone. I'm Christiana Manpour in London. As Israel says its troops have entered Gaza City, the humanitarian crisis is stark. Bakeries in North Gaza are closed, according to the UN. Hospitals are nearly out of fuel, says the Palestine Red Crescent. Over 4,300 children have been killed, according to the Palestinian Health Ministry in Ramallah. So Gaza is at a breaking point. The UN insists more aid be delivered into the besieged enclave, including fuel, which is currently banned by Israel. The Secretary General today called for an unconditional release of all the hostages held by Hamas but also pleaded for Palestinian civilians to be seen as separate from Hamas. This in nothing, in nothing should reduce our total rejection for the horrible things that Hamas did the 7th of October. But we need to distinguish. Hamas is one thing, the Palestinian people is another. If we don't make that distinction, I think it's humanity itself that loses meaning. And he questioned Israel's military operation. Meanwhile, in Tokyo, G7 foreign ministers are pushing for humanitarian pauses, though the United States says no ceasefire. While the IDF gave remaining Gaza City residents five hours to evacuate south today. But as Salma Abdelaziz reports, the destruction caused by Israeli bombing means travel is slow and dangerous. Taking only what they can carry, families are fleeing Gaza City. They wave white flags made of anything they can find. And as the sounds of war echo around them, they signal yet again that they are innocents. 
Now we're supposed to be in the safe area, but you can hear the bombs behind us. He says, all of our houses are gone. Nothing is left. The Israeli military has been calling for weeks on all those living in the northern part of the Strip to move southwards, most recently opening what it called safe corridors for limited windows of time, pushing thousands here to Salah Dean Street, where evacuees describe a harrowing journey. We saw along the road destruction, dead bodies everywhere, and the Israeli tanks would demand to search the youth, she says. We saw one young man stripped naked. We witnessed unbearable scenes. The only way to reach the route is by foot or by cart for those who can find room. There was heavy shelling on our neighborhood and we were forced to flee. We have to use these donkey carts because there's no fuel, he says. They cut everything off to force us out of our homes. Israeli troops are now in the heart of Gaza City. As Israel's defense minister apparently declared the entire city, the whole of the enclave's largest population center, a legitimate target. Gaza is the biggest terrorist stronghold that mankind has ever built. This whole city is one big terror base. Underground, they have kilometers of tunnels connecting to hospitals and schools. The UN calls this exodus forcible displacement and accuses Israel of the collective punishment of some two million people. And these routes can be dangerous and deadly. This was Salah Din Street just a few weeks ago. CNN geolocated and authenticated these videos showing the aftermath of explosions that killed evacuees. You can see luggage among the bodies. And many fear they will never be allowed to return home. Some here say this is reminiscent of the Nakba, the Arabic term for the expulsion of Palestinians from their towns during the founding of Israel. We walked a very long way. It felt like the Nakba of 2023, she says. We walked by dead people who were ripped to shreds. Children were very tired because there was no water. People were dying and there were elderly who couldn't walk. And for those who do make it, bombardment and siege await them in the south too. There is no true escape. Salma Abdelaziz reporting there, and the images look horrific. Since Israel started bombing Gaza after the October 7th Hamas massacres that left 1,400 people dead, more than 10,500 Gazans have been killed, three-quarters of them women, children and the elderly, according to the Palestinian Ministry of Health in Ramallah. The UN says 92 of its staff members have been killed, and the Red Cross reports its convoys have come under fire. The International Rescue Committee says a five-hour evacuation or humanitarian pause just isn't enough. David Miliband, the former UK Foreign Secretary, is CEO of the IRC, and he's joining me now. Um, David Miliband, welcome back to the program. I, I, I don't know whether you could see that report that Salma Abdelaziz put together, but the, the scenes and what we're hearing from the people on the ground are truly horrifying. Can I first ask you to comment on whether a four or five hour evacuation corridor, so to speak, you know, pause, is, is enough. Well, thanks for having me on, Christiane. I, I've come on with a singular purpose today, and that is to say that it is desperately beyond time for the world community to get serious 
about what a humanitarian halt in the fighting, what a humanitarian ceasefire, what the Americans call an, a humanitarian pause, what that can mean in practice. Because our view based on our team on the ground in Egypt who are trying to get aid in, but also our experience around the world, is that a humanitarian halt, a humanitarian ceasefire, needs to be organized, it needs to be coordinated, it needs to be led, it needs to be monitored, it needs to have sufficient duration if it's really to relieve the humanitarian suffering and save lives. And what I would say to you is that it's beyond urgent to get this humanitarian ceasefire so that our teams can do the work and the partners that we have on the ground inside Gaza can do their work. Because many, many are dead already, but many, many more are going to lose their lives soon. And so this is a matter of the utmost urgency. And I appeal through your, to your viewers through this program that we get into the details about what a humanitarian ceasefire could do uh, over a period of at least five days, which is the estimate that we base our expertise on, that our expertise has led us to believe is necessary if we're to fulfill the promise of saving civilian lives. So you say five days, they've given five hours and only periodic. This is what uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu's you know, chief advisor, Ambassador Mark Regev, told me last night on this program. We've also had pauses to facilitate uh, uh, the departure of Gazans from the northern Gaza Strip to the southern Gaza Strip. We created a safe uh, corridor. There are also pauses to allow in uh, humanitarian uh, supplies. These are things that we've done in the past. We're willing to see them in the future. We want to make sure that the humanitarian effort to the people of Gaza can continue. And of course, there will be pauses to facilitate that. We've done all that. We're willing to do that in the future. But to cease the war against Hamas, would be a mistake. So there's obviously a conflicting imperative here, and certainly the United States and Israel appear to be in conflict as well about whatever it means. So in your view, what is the difference between a ceasefire, which they say, forget about it, we're not doing that, and a five-day humanitarian pause or ceasefire? So the words matter much less to us as a humanitarian agency than the substance of the action that takes place. Let me go through what's necessary, what's essential to save lives today. There needs to be a flow of aid. At the moment, it's a trickle of aid. Four, hour, four trucks an hour being processed uh, at various gates, uh, the Rafa gate. There needs to be a massive scale up of the aid flows. That's medicines, that's non-food items. Uh, that is food, that is water, the basics of life, and the fuel to get those goods around the Gaza Strip. Second, you can't deliver aid without aid workers. You quoted the UN figure, over 90 UN aid workers killed. It's not safe at the moment. Uh, only four out of 70 uh, partners on the ground are actually working with full services at the moment. So we need to get aid workers in. Thirdly, essential. We've got to be able to have safety for civilians who come to receive aid. When they bring their kids, when they uh, bring their wounded, they've got to be able to be safe in a health center. Over 100 hospitals have been hit. It's also, fourthly, vital that those who need treatment that can only be delivered outside the Gaza Strip are able to get out. And you mentioned in your uh, report, those who choose to leave need to be able to get back. There's one other thing which is absolutely critical. That's that the hostage issue, which is also a humanitarian issue, is properly addressed. So we don't pick numbers or names out of thin air. Our 
plea is based on the evidence of what we know is necessary. And this is a major, major, major humanitarian catastrophe. And it requires a massive operation if it is to be done. If the fighting stops or is, is stopped, then a humanitarian ceasefire, even for a limited period, we say that the five days is the absolute minimum, it will allow us to save lives, allow partners on the ground to save lives. And that's absolutely the humanitarian imperative in action. So you're telling us this. Have you told this or are you in any negotiations with the Israeli government or who? Egypt, Egypt rather, they have uh, access um, to the Rafah crossing. We've, we've been very open about this. We're not negotiating. We're not a party to negotiations. I can say that very clearly. But we've used our humanitarian expertise. The fact that our aim, our sole aim, is the humanitarian mission of saving civilian lives. We've used that to inform the public debate. Now, the UN Security Council is having negotiations. They are talking. The G7 foreign ministers, you mentioned. The Israeli government have got their own uh, words and proposals out there. We are saying that our teams on the ground are saying that there is the, we're on the verge of something much, much worse because the threat of communicable diseases, the threat of cholera, the threat of measles and typhoid, this is there when the Secretary General of the UN says that raw sewage will soon be flowing in the streets. That's what comes in its wake. And we're saying that the imperative of relieving the suffering in Gaza now is absolutely core to the humanitarian mission. That's why I'm here speaking to you, because it's about our job. It's about our purpose as a humanitarian agency that says that every single civilian life is of equal value. So it is your purpose. It is at the core. Can you give us, our viewers, any kind of modern day example of how in the midst of a raging war, uh, reluctant warriors uh, don't want to cease fire. You, you've seen it, the Russians in, in Ukraine, you've seen it in many, many places. Uh, they say, well, you know, basically, it is what it is. We, we've got to, in this case, annihilate Hamas. And these are our pauses. As, as Netanyahu, the prime minister, said to ABC, little pauses. Well, you're right that we, the humanitarian community, we are on the back foot around the world. I mean, there's 110 million refugees and internally displaced people. There's 360 million people in humanitarian need. There's 50 plus conflicts going on around the world. We are on the back foot, absolutely. And civilian, civilians and civilian protection is not being respected and not being delivered. And that's why the appeal that we're making is founded on our knowledge. We're not taking a political position. We're speaking to what we know of the situation on the ground. And we're desperately trying to inform public debate as expert witnesses for what can happen. Now, we know that we can get mobilized quickly, but I'm not going to make any false promises to you because that absolutely satisfies no one. I know you're not making any political uh, suggestions or comments, but you know that this word ceasefire has become a political football all over the world, including in the G7, including in your country, Britain, including in your own party, the Labour Party. Huge dilemma over should leaders actually use this word, call for this word. It's become a political hot potato while people are, in fact, dying. And as one, you know, as the UN... Uh, Anra chief told me the last time he was in, little children came up to him asking just for a sip of water and a slice of bread. Yet this word and the idea of it seems to be dominating. 
Well, no, Christian, this is about people, not about words. And any of your viewers can go to the IRC website. They can see what a, a press release on Sunday, what a humanitarian ceasefire means and why it is necessary. We're not entering the political debate. We're saying that the word pause or ceasefire can deliver as long as it's defined in a very clear way. We're saying a humanitarian ceasefire has to be at least five days. It has to cover the whole of Gaza. It has to be properly monitored. There has to be the flow of uh, aid workers, but also the flow of aid itself, of water, uh, of food, of non-food items. We're defining very carefully. And we shouldn't be arguing about the word. We should be arguing about the substantive responsibility to deliver for those civilians who are on the receiving end at the moment. Uh, and in the meantime, doctors, as you know, in Gaza are this, running out of... Let me of just say one other thing. Mm -hmm. This crisis has plumbed new depth. New depths on October the 7th with a reprehensible and horrific attack by Hamas in Israel. New depth in the deplorable conditions that exist in Gaza today, deteriorating fast. And as humanitarians, we are honor bound to say there must be a way, in fact, there is a way to at least staunch the dying. And that is what we're trying to do today. And maybe even get them food, water, fuel and electricity because they are under a very draconian siege, as we discovered from these interviews that we've been collecting from inside Gaza. Uh, take a listen to these people. They had been sheltering, I believe, at one of the hospitals there. <laughs> Look at our situation. Is this a life that we are living? We have no food, no electricity or water. We sleep in the corridors without any blankets. It is very cold. This is not a life. They displaced us from our homes. They killed us, our children. No one is left. We lost the people we love the most. It's a genocide. I swear it's a genocide. 60% of Gaza's hospitals are out of service, according to the Palestinian Authority, uh, Ministry of Health. What about a siege? What about, you know, the, they say, you know, the, the, the Israelis say, we're not sending fuel because fuel is a du dual-use substance. And yet, and yet the hospitals can't operate without it. Well, I, I'm, I couldn't see the pictures, but I can hear in the voices the absolutely gut-wrenching situation that is facing civilians. I think it was a child who was yep. uh, speaking to you. As I say, I couldn't see the, 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 the picture. Look, the flow of fuel to deliver aid, the flow of water, that needs to be ongoing. That's a fundamental human requirement. And what we're arguing is that the humanitarian halt in the fighting, the humanitarian ceasefire, the humanitarian pause, it needs to be long enough to allow us to address the immediate needs that exist, to get the wounded out, to address the hostage issue, which is, I'm sure, immensely complex. You've got Ambassador Kurtzer later. Uh, he, he, he's a real expert on, on much of this. We've got to be able to address this humanitarian uh, need that's been expressed in those extraordinary words that you're, that you're that your child interviewee used. And a mother there as well. Now, look, Afghanistan is suddenly again uh, in the news for awful, awful reasons. Um, you're dealing with this other urgent issue. Pakistan has ordered all Afghan refugees and migrants without official IDs to leave the country. You know, again, a looming humanitarian disaster, not to mention 
abject cruelty. These people are being uprooted again. They're already refugees. They're being sent back. About 129,000 people have fled from one of the provinces, uh, you know, along the border as of, as of last Thursday. Well, Christian, the, um, I said earlier that we're on the back foot around the world, and here's a, a prime example. Uh, we've obviously got a program in Pakistan, uh, which, is be, which is doing excellent work. We've also got a very large team, 5,000 people and 2,000 women working in Afghanistan, and we have a mobile health team at the border that is meeting some of the people who've come across. In fact, the figure I have is that 200,000 people have arrived, Afghans have arrived from Pakistan to Nangarhar province alone in Afghanistan. Now, Pakistan has been immensely generous. It's one of the most, the highest refugee hosting country populations in the world. Over three million uh, Afghans have been in Pakistan for a very long uh, time. This issue about the undocumented um, Afghans, I, I met some of them in Peshawar when I visited in April uh, earlier this uh, year. We're immensely uh, concerned about the need to mobilize especially health treatment for these people. And of course, we're concerned that in the face of the global emergency that exists, there isn't going to be the bandwidth to address this. And so th th these crises pile up and they pile up above all on the aid workers of organizations like the IRC. But we're we are mobilizing in response to that uh, Afghan crisis. There's just so many, many crises at the moment. David Miliband, thank you so much for being with us. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now, as we were talking about at the G7 meeting in Tokyo today, the U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, again said the Biden administration opposes any Israeli reoccupation of Gaza. Take a listen. Gaza cannot be con uh, continue to be run by Hamas. Um, uh, that simply invites a repetition of October 7th, uh, and Gaza uses a place from which to launch terrorist attacks. Uh, it's also clear that Israel cannot occupy Gaza. Um, now, the reality is that there may be uh, a need for some transition period uh, at the end of the conflict, but it is imperative that um, the Palestinian people uh, be central to, uh, to governance uh, in, uh, in Gaza and uh, in the West Bank as well. 
Indeed, on this program yesterday, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu's advisor, Mark Regev, said that occupation is not in their plans. But just how much influence does Washington really have at this moment? Daniel Kurtzer served as U.S. ambassador to Egypt and later to Israel from 2001 to 2005. Daniel Kurtzer, welcome to the program, Ambassador. Um, can I first ask you, uh, to respond to what we were talking about in terms of the humanitarian crisis in Gaza and IRC and increasingly loud voices, including from the United States, calling for some kind of relief. IRC saying that it needs to be five days with, with, with careful deployment of, of resources and the ability to actually get sustainable, life-saving resources in. Others saying, and certainly Israel, no, 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 because it'll allow Hamas to regroup. Can you, can you figure out how to thread that needle? Well, I think David Miliband put his finger on both sides of this issue. Uh, number one, uh, it will require more than a few hours to put into place the kind of a volume of humanitarian assistance, uh, whether it's food and fuel and water and medical care, that's absolutely necessary. But uh, he also noted correctly that before you can put a humanitarian pause or humanitarian ceasefire into effect, uh, there are a number of issues that need to be addressed. Uh, who are the parties to it? Is it Israel and Hamas? Who speaks for Hamas? What about Palestine Islamic Jihad? Who monitors uh, what happens during this period and what happens if one side or the other violates it? So it's not simple uh, to simply say, uh, well, let's have a humanitarian pause when either side uh, could violate it in a way which makes the resumption of hostilities that much more challenging. So I think the, uh, the efforts now by Secretary Blinken, CIA Director Burns, who's out in the region, the Qataris and others uh, are working towards resolving these very important issues so as to get to the more important question of uh, bringing in the humanitarian uh, requirements. And on that big picture, particularly the issue that the United States is now talking more and more about, and that is to protect civilians, to separate civilians from the fighters. Um, there, are, there, is, there are reports that President Biden spoke to Prime Minister Netanyahu about this issue and did not get the answer that he wanted and was somewhat taken aback. It, do you feel that Biden and the administration who are strongly behind Israel's right to self-defense, obviously, have, the, have any influence over what Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu does in this case? Well, Christiane, I think what the president has tried to do for the last four weeks is to create uh, the public space of support for Israel that allows him to have very tough and direct conversations with the Israelis. And I think we're now seeing uh, some of the uh, results of those conversations. They're not all positive. Uh, I think the president will continue at it, as will other U.S. officials. But uh, the United States, first of all, uh, does believe that it's important to degrade Hamas's capabilities. Uh, it's important to create an atmosphere after this war ends that does not allow Hamas to uh, reestablish itself and uh, govern in Gaza. Uh, but the president, I think, I'm confident, has been telling the prime minister that uh, you need to moderate uh, and change the way you are doing what you're doing in Gaza. The bombing may have been aimed at uh, trying to find the tunnels and the underground headquarters, but the degree of civilian casualties suggests that there have to be other ways 
of uh, finding Hamas. And I think the Israeli ground operation is now focused on locating the tunnels, locating the underground bunkers, and trying to uproot Hamas that way. We just heard from Secretary Blinken in the uh, soundbite that I played about the day after, so to speak. And this is another, you know, big unknown. Benjamin Netanyahu surprised everybody when he gave his first actual interview to an American station um, where he talked about indefinite security control of Gaza. You just heard Blinken said, you know, neither Israel should occupy nor should Hamas be in charge. Last night, I asked Ambassador Regev about what did it look like, this indefinite security control. I just want to play what he said. There will have to be a uh, Israeli security presence, but that doesn't mean Israel is reoccupying Gaza. That doesn't mean that Israel is there to govern the Gazans. On the contrary, we are interested in establishing new frameworks where the Gazans can rule themselves, where there can be international support for the reconstruction of Gaza. Hopefully we can bring in countries, Arab countries as well, for a, a reconstruction of a demilitarized post-Hamas Gaza. So I, I, what does that mean and, and what are your thoughts on it? And as you know, and this is, I think, important because Prime Minister Netanyahu is in coalition with very seriously ideological, religious nationalists who want nothing more than to go back to Gaza. And we've seen tweets and we've seen, you know, pictures of soldiers on the beach in Gaza now waving the Israeli flag. And it is providing fodder for those who would like to reoccupy. Where do you think this is going to, to go? Christian, as you know, I have uh, uh, called on Prime Minister Netanyahu to uh, leave office. His uh, leadership is discredited. His cabinet of extremist politicians is proving itself, even during this fighting, to be beyond the pale. And so these uh, statements about reoccupying Gaza or creating what could be a long-term security presence, I think, have to be taken only at face value. Secretary Blinken is 100% correct that any uh, occupation or reoccupation or long-term presence of Israel is a guarantee of a long-term conflict with untold consequences. Uh, the two orders of business that need to be thought about now for the day after uh, mean, number one, that Israel has to be out. Number two, that uh, a, a very significant effort at reconstruction of Palestinian life of buildings, of occupations, of uh, resources within Gaza uh, need to be undertaken. But there needs to be also a horizon for a political outcome that assures that we are going to move towards a settlement of the underlying dispute and not have a situation where we return to the status quo ante only to have another war or more terrorism a few years from now. So Secretary Blinken is exactly right. I hope Israeli leaders are listening to this. I'm not sure that Prime Minister Netanyahu is listening to it, but his discredited leadership will probably end shortly after this war uh, as a result of a commission of inquiry. And maybe we can find an Israeli leadership that understands the need, first of all, to uh, help the Palestinians reconstruct their lives in Gaza, but also to look forward with the Palestinians towards a different future. Can I ask you to comment on what uh, former President Obama said recently in a podcast about everybody's responsibility for the current status uh, between Israel and the Palestinians? This is what he said. If you want to solve the problem, then 
You have to take in the whole truth. And you then have to admit nobody's hands are clean, that all of us have complicis, are, are complicit to some degree. I look at this and I think back, what could I have done during my presidency to, to move this forward as hard as I tried? I've got the scars to prove it. But there's a part of me that's still saying, well, was there something else I could have done? So Ambassador, can you answer that question? Uh, first of all, was there something else he or any of the other recent American presidents could have done better? Well, 100%, uh, President Obama is exactly on point. Uh, we've tried, uh, we being the United States, have tried over the past 30 plus years to encourage Israelis and Palestinians to find a way to meet each other somewhere in the middle on questions related to territory and peace and settlements and so forth. Uh, and we were not able to achieve that goal. And I think what President Obama is saying is, did we all work hard enough? Were we tough enough? Were we able to put enough pressure on both sides and to offer incentives for both sides that might have made a difference? Now, the reality is, and I, I would think President Obama doesn't mean that Israel is responsible for October 7th. That, that was a Hamas a horrific operation. But if you take the long view of Israeli-Palestinian interaction, uh, peace negotiations and conflict, the reality is that none of us is exempt from uh, criticism and all of us bear responsibility. The Israelis for maintaining a 56-year occupation, building settlements, uh, onerous occupation practices, Palestinians for continuing violence and terrorism, and not responding when peace process offers were put on the table by Israel, and the United States as what might be called the essential third party of not doing its homework and not being tough enough to see this process of peacemaking through to its conclusion. Uh, and indeed, as you say, President Obama also urges us to you know, hold, quote, contradictory ideas to wit, what Hamas did was horrific, and the occupation is unbearable, and anti-Semitism is an ongoing threat, and not all Palestinians support Hamas. So you, you've pretty much, uh, I, I'm listing and expanding on what, you just, uh, on what you just said. But there are, you know, previous American peace negotiators who are on the record as saying what you've just said, that did we try hard enough? And I know you're on the record in the great Israeli documentary, The Human Factor. Were the United States too much Israel's lawyer? Was the United States willing to do the hard job of being a real friend like President George W. Bush and James Baker, the Secretary of State, who were very serious about Israel's security and trying to resolve this conflict peacefully and justly. Nobody was uh, since, since George W. Bush, uh, sorry, yes, George, sorry, George H. W. Bush, President George H. W. Bush. Would you agree? 100%, uh, both in that documentary and in a couple of books that I've done and articles since uh, leaving government, I've tried to take a hard look in the mirror at what the United States did, did not do, and should have done. And you're exactly right, Christian. After the George H.W. Bush administration and the heroic efforts of the president and the secretary of state at that time, uh, our efforts uh, fell short uh, in subsequent uh, uh, challenges that, that we faced, uh, both 
uh, following the Oslo Accords, even in the Camp David summit in the year 2000, uh, President uh, George W. Bush convened a summit meeting in 2007, but the United States didn't really follow up. Secretary Kerry tried. In other words, there's been activity, but there has never been the determined, strong, uh, uh, persistent American leadership and determination to see this through that we saw back in, in the uh, first Bush administration. Mm -hmm. And that's what I've been calling for for many years, uh, very often in an echo chamber uh, where nobody's listening. But uh, the question is, are we gonna try to do it now? Because if all we do is reconstruct Gaza, which is obviously a critical first step, if that's all we do, we're fading ourselves to repeat this war in the future. We must take a hard look at what's called the peace process and get these two parties to understand that they're gonna to have to make hard choices and stop doing the bad things they're doing and start reaching out to each other for peace. You wrote an article in Haaretz in which you recalled what your Israeli interlocutors had said back during the Iraq war period, that they warned about the blowback from that war. And especially they derided the George W. Bush administration's notion that somehow democracy was going to come flourishing in the Middle East through the bombing of Baghdad. And I would like to play for you um, something from the archive. In fact, Secretary um, of State Condoleezza Rice from back in 2005, when the US insisted that these elections take place that brought Hamas to power. Here's what she said. We would hope that the elections can go forward and that uh, everyone will cooperate to, uh, to make those elections go forward because Elections are fundamental to the continued evolution and development of the Palestinian process. So she then said afterwards, we've got to go and do an after action report. We had no idea what was, you know, how popular at the time Hamas was. Can the United States be trusted to get it right in the future? It's regrettable that Secretary Rice was getting that kind of analysis. I happen to have been in the region, I had already retired from government uh, when those elections took place. And all I was hearing before the Palestinian elections was that uh, the Palestinian Liberation Organization was going to lose, uh, not just because of Hamas's popularity, they weren't all that popular, but because of PLO corruption and dissatisfaction uh, and mismanagement uh, with their governance. Mm -hmm. uh, so again, I don't know why we believed that it was a good idea uh, to be pushing for something that was going to end up the way it ended up. Uh, I think that what this calls for is uh, a much deeper analysis of the situation on the ground, uh, and not only analysis, but uh, coming to grips with realities. Uh, you know, this is a government in Israel right now with which we cannot work on the peace process. Uh, and so one of the key requirements after this war ends is to have the Israeli people make a decision about where they want to go. And it's gonna be hard to work with the Palestinian government on a peace process uh, since they barely managed to yeah. govern the West Bank and we're expecting them to try to govern Gaza. So there's a lot of work to be done. And uh, you know whether it's unfortunate or not, the United States is still the only real outside party that with determination can try to make some of these things work. Ambassador Kurtz, thank you for your expertise and your perspective, having been in the room. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, 
new friends and old, stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Now, in the United States, Democrats defied pollsters last night holding their ground in those statewide elections. In Virginia, the party gained full control over the state legislature, while Democrat Gabe Armo made history as Rhode Island's first black congressman. The New York Times national politics reporter Ested Herndon joins Harry Srinivasan now to discuss what these results could mean for next year's presidential election. Christian, thanks. Estad Herndon, thanks so much for joining us. I'm sure it was a late night for you. What were the races that you were watching as the polls closed all over the country last night? Yeah, I mean, the, the principal races was, you know, the Kentucky governor's race. We had the kind of state legislature and state senate that were both up in Virginia. Those were called kind of at the end of the night for Democrats. We were watching Mississippi, but that ended up uh, not going to a runoff and holding with the Republicans. But I think on the top line, you really just have been watching all of the kind of uh, uh, races that show the continued salience of abortion rights, both from Kentucky to Ohio uh, uh, to, you know, and, and I think that continues to trend for Democrats. We've seen basically since the Dobbs decision has fallen. And so that's why I was looking at the night going into. And I think if you look at Virginia, Kentucky and Ohio, there's a clear message that that is still top of mind for voters across the country. So let's break those apart a little bit. First, let's talk about Ohio. Uh, it was a, it was a change to the state constitution. Yeah. It was a change to the state constitution to enshrine abortion rights. And let's remember, this is the kind of uh, uh, kind of latest iteration of a fight that's been playing out there for a while. Republicans tried to raise the standard on the state referendum to because they were worried about how many people would dr drive to the polls. They tried to change the date of the election. And you still saw Democrats have a resounding kind of decisive victory there to go and enshrine abortion rights in the state law. That's over the concerns of some Republican state officials who have really campaigned hard against it. I think the margin there really, to me, says that we need to start reframing how we think about this. This isn't just an issue for women in suburbs, as it's kind of uh, generally talked about, is that you've seen this kind of create a new type of coalition, that when abortion rights are on the ballot, that this is a, you know, a, a, a wide range of people will come together, even in a red state. And so I think that, the, you know, Ohio is a clear kind of message. And the reason why, you know, Democrats are trying to uh, really consolidate around a, a message of, of protecting freedoms and abortion rights for 2024, and why Republicans really haven't found an answer to it, because as they continue to kind of stick their head in the sand and, and try to fear monger around Democratic tactics, that's not working for voters. They see them as extremists who are taking their rights away. Now, what happened in Virginia? I mean, it wasn't on the ballot per se, but it still uh, played a factor, you think, in flipping the, the legislature? I think it did because I think we should think about Governor Glenn Youngkin's role in these races. Now, uh, Glenn Youngkin was one in 2021, kind of on a message of a principal conservative, and he tried to use these elections uh, uh, as a kind of litmus test of his conservative agenda because the fullness of the state legislature was up, both the state Senate and the state house. Democrats controlled one house, but were looking to seek uh, seek both. 
And Youngkin had basically said, if you give me two houses of a Republican legislature, I will give you a conservative agenda that includes kind of finding a moderate or compromised position on abortion that would limit it to something like 15 weeks. Uh, uh, that was what he was kind of going around the state saying and specifically pitching to national media as maybe an entry point for him to get into a Republican presidential race. But that didn't come to fruition. You saw Democrats really do well, and they took control of both houses of the state legislature, functionally, you know, kind of grinding Youngkin's proposed agenda to a halt. And I think that that is seen as a real blow to his kind of like parents' rights, uh, 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 abortion protections that he was trying to put into place. And I would say another kind of a result that, you know, stuck out in Virginia is that Loudoun County School Board also went to liberals. That was a place where there had been so many fights about kind of culture wars and LGBTQ rights in schools and what folks were teaching, the so-called woke messages uh, that were coming from education. And this has not really motivated Republicans to the degree that they had hoped uh, once again. And so I think, you know, for all the national narrative about Joe Biden's problems, we actually saw a Democratic Party, particularly in Virginia that was showing real signs of health. So while we have one governor in Virginia whose presidential prospects might have dimmed a little after last night, uh, Andy Bashir in Kentucky seemed to uh, kind of improve his stature. I mean, he improved his stature not only uh, nationally, but even when we think back to when he ran four years ago, he saw even bigger margins this time around. That really speaks to someone who used the power of incumbency to his advantage and has a real name brand in the state. Now, remember, the Bashir is a, a unique kind of Kentucky figure, has a longstanding family name and has a history of being a kind of approachable Democrat in a red state, but that should not uh, uh, you know, overshadow what he really did in this race. He embraced the idea of protecting abortion, uh, abortion rights. He cast his uh, opponent, Daniel Cameron, as kind of an extremist on this issue. Uh, and you also saw him really, you know, as a state that has experienced the recent mass shooting, you know, he was the face of the kind of consolation and, and, and you know, for citizens. That, and that seems to have really done him well. We saw a lot of counties that voted for Donald Trump as recently as 2020 vote for Andy Bashir. Uh, last night. And so that really says that there was some crossover appeal uh, for this individual candidate. But I do think it's going to be somewhat of a model if we look about how Democrats can run broadly come 2024, is if you try to make it not about the kind of national race, but localize specifically the issues of abortion and protecting democracy, that's going to be the playbook. I was talking to a state party chair a couple of weeks ago, and he told me that, you know, no matter who's at the top of the ticket, they think they have to communicate the stakes of those issues to their voters because what we have seen since 2020 is that Democrats will come out when that is uh, when that is communicated. That's true in the midterms. That's true in these off-year elections. And they're hoping that's going to be true next year. There was a red state governor, Tate Reeves, uh, who held on to his seat in Mississippi. He was challenged by a cousin of Elvis Presley. Yeah, yeah, there was a uh, there was an interesting race in Mississippi, uh, partially because Tate Reeves, the incumbent governor, has been sp experiencing a spate of scandal, which caused some to really think that the uh, Democratic challenger Brandon Presley could do some real uh, could could make some real inroads there. But Mississippi is a famously tough state for Democrats to win. It is that's the highest proportion of non-white voters in the country. It's a very black uh, a state, so you can actually get 
to kind of 45, 46 percentage points if a Democrat were to mobilize all those Black voters, like we kind of saw last night. The difficulty in Mississippi is getting past that threshold to more than 50 percent. It's a state that just implemented a runoff law. So actually, last night, we were looking to see if Reeves were going to be able to hold past 50 percent so he can avoid the runoff. And he did do so. What What's the message right now that Republicans are taking if they're facing these losses uh, that are moved by you know, uh, voters who care a lot about abortion or who uh, care less about uh, you know, what is and what is not woke and being uh, taught in schools. Yeah, I think for Republicans, I mean, there has to be a real soul search about specifically their message on abortion rights. I mean, they have been led by an evangelical wing of the party that is clearly uh, uh, out of touch with the majority of Americans. And so if the lesson for conservatives was that, you know, the the, end, the Dobbs decision was going to bring this back to the states, was going to be a kind of democratic repositioning of this issue, they need to take the lessons of democracy and make clear that, you know, the majority of Americans, if they are put in front of them, are going to act to protect abortion rights. What does that do for their message next year is the principal question I think Republicans have to ask themselves. The other kind of question here is just like the general Trump triangulation. They have not seen uh, a kind of his kind of energy translate to other candidates. And so if there is an enthusiasm problem, if there is a split among the Republican base, then that means that, you know, they're not they're less able to take advantage of any Democratic shortcomings. And so, you know, when I was at the Republican National Convention earlier this year, the first and foremost thing they said they need heading into 2024 is unity around the party. Now, in the primary, there has been basically a deference to Donald Trump, but I don't think that from top to bottom, you have a united party around that figure. And because you still have so many people who are saying that he has too much baggage and others. And so if you're Republicans, there's not only a message problem when it comes to abortion, there is a, a unity problem when it comes to whether the base of this party wants and what that's what it's delivering in terms of candidates, because it is not delivering wins. These are winnable races for Republicans last night and in 2022, and they are losing them. And that's a clear message from voters across the country. Last year when we spoke, you described the, quote, stench that Donald Trump has left on the Republican Party and the Republican brand. But here we are now, four uh, indictments, 90 plus criminal charges later, and he is still outperforming all the other Republican candidates. And he doesn't even have to be on the debate stage. Yeah. Yeah, it's stunning, really. And I think that this is a, a kind of difference in assumptions from a lot of people. You know, when I th think about post midterms, there was a lot of uh, assumed political uh, fallout that folks thought would happen from the indictments. Of course, voters would find him unqualified for the office if that were to happen. Of course, folks would have to kind of recognize the legal system and, and say that that makes him you know, disqualifies him for presidency. And that hasn't really happened. On the Republican side, you've seen people really consolidate around him under the vision of him being persecuted. The latest CNN polling has him at 61% nationally among the in the Republican primary. That means that this whole year, you know, these other candidates haven't really made a dent in his support. And he has consolidated and grown that over the summer. So I think that's one piece of it. But I do think there is an there is an impact to the indictments when we think broadly and look ahead to a general election. This is a country 
that does not want a rematch of 2020, that thinks that Joe Biden is simply too old and thinks that Donald Trump has simply too much baggage. And so that is the big impact of them be us being big, being brought back to this point. It complicates the question of just who's going to win, because I think we are going to see an electorate that is a near open revolt about its options come next year. So may that will that mean there's more interest in a third party candidate? Will that mean more people stay home? Will that mean people skip the top line and vote down ballot? Will that mean young people stay out? I mean, I don't know kind of where that kind of uh, uh, where 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 that impact falls, but I do think it completely upends the type of calculations we're seeing. In a typical year, I think we would take these off-year elections as a sign for the next year. But with those two candidates at the top of the ballot, I think it scrambles everything. Is there a significant enough conversation in the Democratic Party right now to say and to understand that if Donald Trump is not the candidate, that perhaps lots of other Republicans stand a better chance at beating Joe Biden, regardless of what he's been able to do with the economy, what he's able to ma manage in foreign policy and so on. I think that's a great question. I, you know, I recently last week, you know, for this week's episode of the run up our podcast, we went and talked to the Biden campaign in Wilmington, Delaware, to basically ask them this question you're asking me. And what they say is they know that they have real work to do, that they're investing money early to win over black and brown communities, that they're treating them as persuadable voters, not uh, base voters. When they recognize they have to convince them to come out rather than just assume they will come out. But I, I, I guess that's still coming up against the fundamental flaw here, which is that, you know, a candidate that was seen as an emergency option is asking for a renewal of his contract. And I think that for a lot of these people, uh, it, it's not really about, um, you know, uh, whether Joe Biden was a good president or not. It's about whether they want him to be the president going forward. And so I think Democrats might find themselves coming back around to trying to make that emergency moral argument that you have to come out because the prospect of Donald Trump winning is so scary. And I think that will motivate some people. But I just wonder if that's harder to do a second time around, particularly when the electorate's views of Donald Trump have become more nihilistic and, they're, and have just be, and they have seen him as kind of less of an emergency threat. Maybe that changes come next year after these criminal trials and things like that. But as of now, the act of calling Donald Trump distasteful has not worked. The electorate does not see him as uniquely more extreme than Joe Biden. And that's a problem for Joe Biden. There's another presidential debate that's happening tonight. And I'm wondering how much you think now foreign policy plays into how these candidates are auditioning. And the inverse what has happened to Joe Biden's support because of the October 7th attacks? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I think we have to separate it by parties. When we think about Republicans, the sheer fact is that the, the you know, the, the changes in the, in the increasing global conflict has not really upended that race at all. There's pretty universal agreement when you get to Republicans about the need to kind of unconditionally support Israel. You have kind of Donald Trump saying, you know, praising Hezbollah smarts and kind of saying Trump get ridiculous, like rhetorical kind of things. He said he's been previously accused of anti-Semitism. That hasn't really hurt 
him in this specific issue. Republicans are going to be in universal agreement tonight about the need to support Israel and uh, uh, blaming the conflict on Joe Biden's supposed weak leadership. Where there is not agreement for them is on the question of increased aid to Ukraine, which much more of that interventionist to non-interventionist split comes up when you talk about supporting them on that front. Among Democrats, though, it's unquestionably true that the the conflict in Israel and Gaza has uh, changed kind of some folks' perception of Joe Biden. I've been seeing reporting coming out of Michigan about the large Arab community there. I've seen reporting about American Jewish communities kind of changing based about how they feel the Democratic Party is being deferential uh, uh, to pro-Palestinian protesters. And then I think we should also say the biggest group where we have seen this take root is young folks who have been increasingly calling, uh, leading the calls for a ceasefire, pressuring the Democratic Party to embrace that type of language. And we have seen only some do that. And really the top of the party, Joe Biden, uh, uh, Chuck Schumer, others really stay clear from that. And I think that's going to be the increasing question for this is, does the United States support for Israel uh, put it further and further away from where young people are on this issue? And does that drive an increasing distance between a president who needed those people to come out in 2020? You know, you've got another season of your podcast up. And of course, there's what people in the press and sort of people who watch politics think everyone cares about. And here you are in rural Washington state. So what do the voters that you've been speaking with, what does resonate with them? Yeah, it's a lot of the issues we've been talking about. One thing I really loved about what we did in our first episode of the run-up, which will actually be every week through the election next year, is that we actually went back to people and they matched up a lot of our reporting. We were in Washington State, a kind of random place to go because it's the last and longest standing bellwether county in America. This is the only county that's actually gotten the presidential race correct every cycle since 1980. And so we were doing a kind of gimmick. We stayed in the diner and asked the folks who lived in this town, okay, so how's this going to go? You tell us. And so one of the things we kind of found from that exploration is, you know, to your point, a real distaste for Trump, not only among kind of obviously Democrats, but among those independents and Republicans. I talked to people who voted for him in 2016, who had soured and would not vote for Republicans again. Talked to someone who wrote in Daffy Duck in 2020, but refuses to back Donald Trump in 2024 and has kind of been upset with the party for aiding and embedding uh, uh, his candidacy's rise. And so even though we had that kind of group of Trump supporters, it seems like a community that is trending further away from where the Republican Party is, like a lot of swing voters and independents are right now. And so that was a kind of overall kind of thing we took from it, was that there is a sense of anxiety and dread about next year's election that threatens to really up in this from the, from the top down. And if people feel kind of unsatisfied with these two options and candidates, it is really going to affect how they view their own sense of power and the ability to make change in the political system. And so that really came up in sort of, in sort of what we were doing in Washington. It wasn't just who they thought was going to win, which for the record was Joe Biden, but also the kind of mood that people were feeling about next year's election. And that's what really stuck with me is that if we get this type of rematch that nobody seems to want, what is the downstream effects of that? host of the Run-Up podcast and New York Times national politics reporter, Stead Herndon. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And that's it for now. Thank you for watching. Goodbye from London. When you work, you work next level. 
And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.